a friendly warning. Some of the stories in the Monster Box contain scenes depicting adult themes, strong language, sexual content, and intense violence. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, friend, and welcome to The Monster Box, a collection of audio stories of and about monsters inspired by the D&D universe. I'm your resident monster host and narrator, Chuck D. Yeager. Beside me sits the aforementioned Monster Box, a treasure chest full of stories written by a collective of monster lovers, like yourself, known as the Monster Nation. Each time I open it, I release a new tale about a different creature for your enjoyment. So let's lift the lid and see what awaits us. Today's esoteric article gives us just a glimpse of the Aboleth. These massive alien eel-like beasts are the masterminds of the deep oceans of the world. Some claim the Aboleth hail from a sunken empire of brilliant beings that mastered the secrets of the universe long ago. Others claim they come from dark spaces between the stars. Whatever is true, these serpentine beings are no strangers to intrigue. An Aboleth's schemes can span generations, and when complete, well, it's usually not good news. This story is brought to you by Matt Teager, dear listener. I hope you enjoy it. It's entitled, The Job of a Lifetime. The Sea Wyvern danced lightly through the waves. She was a small cargo ship that in her youth had seen action as a fighting ship in the Succession Wars and then later as a mead smuggler at Abdurabak. But today, she was simply a passenger ship, playfully racing before the wind. The day was hot and bright, and not a single white cloud marred the endless blue above the horizon. An ordinary-looking young man in simple robes named Alanstar Pembroke stood amid ships watching the waves. The most notable thing about Alanstar was that he was completely and totally forgettable. Alanstar's special skill had not been cultivated through years of practice deception, nor was it fabricated through the use of some masterful illusion. He simply had the disposition of one who was easily forgotten about and disappearing from notice. If anyone had bothered to ask after him, they would be met with responses such as, about average, downright normal, or simply, who? In his hand, he clutched a well-worn letter the wax seal of which had been broken weeks ago. The crew and passengers busied themselves about the ship, all of them moving or chatting or moving and chatting. Not a single one of them, even giving Alanstar a glance as he sat down on a nearby crate and began to reread the letter that he had reread a score of times before. Dear Alanstar Pembroke, Master Academic, forgive my impropriety but the excited fever with which I pen this correspondence has fully consumed me, and I shall dispense with much formality. I am the Viscount Welgor Yugelfeth, Lord of the Lil Gifford Peninsula. I suspect that my family name precedes me, as we are well-known patrons of the scientific pursuits. It is my most fervent wish to continue my family legacy, and it is for this purpose that I've sought you out. I have reason to believe that, despite the gulf that my social standing presents, we are kindred spirits with a great deal in common. I have investigated your academic career with much interest, and you are the exact person I require. 
but my enthusiasm runs faster than my explanation. Forgive me. I have decided to make a permanent mark, not just on my great peninsula, but on the world. To that end, I have begun construction of a grand library such as the world has never known. This shall be a beacon of knowledge that shall light the world and one that stands stalwart through ages as a symbol of learning. It shall be a place where all races and peoples shall be welcome to learn, a place where those that wish to drink of knowledge can find their thirst satiated. My construction crews labor tireless on a majestic building. My agents scour the lands for books to purchase. I have spared no expense in this endeavor, and yet I lack one vital ingredient, a master librarian with whom to entrust it. You, sir, are the perfect academic to shepherd this project. My every inquiry into your academic prowess and character only serves to bolster my belief that I must have you shepherd this endeavor. All arrangements have been made, with the presumption of your acceptance, of course. First-rate accommodations have been secured in your name aboard the Sea Wyvern. By all accounts, she has been outfitted with every possible comfort and departs in a fortnight. After a brief stopover on the Emerald Isle, she will convey you straight to me in Lil Gifford. Upon your debarking, a carriage shall bring you forthwith to my summer estate which shall be your base of operations until my new library is constructed. The staff there have instructions to see to your every need. I shall join you in late spring. I look forward with anticipation to many an academic discussion. Viscount Welgor Yulwafeth. Postscript. The Emerald Isle is a frequent way station along several major seafaring routes, and as such, interesting things can and do appear upon its shores. While the ship spends a mundane day taking on new provisions, make your way to Gilly's parchments and tomes. Gilly is a bookseller of some renown from whom I have ordered and previously paid for several rare treasures. I wish you to receive delivery of these important works. However, I leave their names as a surprise for you. Rest assured that the enjoyment that they shall bring you on the final leg of your journey will make the time pass quickly. Alan Stark carefully folded the paper back up, gently reinserted it back into the envelope, folded it reverently closed, and smiled contentedly to himself. If anyone had cared to look at him, they would have noticed nothing special about him, as always. Gilly's Parchment and Tomes was an impressive-sounding bookshop. That is until you saw it. The wooden clapboards of the facade were sea-warped gray. The sign hung crooked and sad, while the glass windows were so murky as to be nearly opaque. Alan Starr approached timidly, placed a hand upon the door handle. He took a breath, found some resolve, and then pushed open the door. The inside flooded Alan Starr with equal parts excitement and revulsion. Several bookshelves sagged under the weight of exotic-looking tomes and rune-encrusted grimoires. Mounds of loose papers dominated the room, such that one could not walk anywhere without trampling them. In several places, teetering piles of books were haphazardly stacked floor to ceiling and may have been holding the roof up. In the far corner, heaps of maps erupted from a desk and lay scattered along the floor. The wealth of knowledge present here was awe-inspiring at least for part of him. 
The other part, the orderly and logical part, raged at the lack of organization. Gilly appeared from somewhere deep within the room and was nothing at all what he expected. What Alan Starr expected was a wizened old man or maybe a gnome. Gilly would be bespeckled and hard of hearing. Gilly would have a hard-nosed bargainer attitude and a gruff talker. Gilly was none of those things. Gilly was a woman, and she was nice to look at. Alan Starr was taken aback. Greetings, fellow Rita. Welcome to Gilly's Parchments and Tomes. She flashed a smile and continued with feigned pleasantry. If ink has been pressed to parchment, we have it. Our chemical formula from ages past, maps to undiscovered treasures, tales from faraway lands, discourses on philosophy, to name but a few of the finds within these walls. How may I help you today? Her eyes moved up and down him, finally rested on his money pouch. The corners of her mouth upturned slightly, and she judged the weight of his purse. Before he could speak, she continued. You have the look of a learned man. This, she said, waving her slender arm around the room, is for common folk that can barely read. Come, follow me. She turned on her heels and set off into the gloom without waiting for a response. Alan Starr was left flummoxed by the whole encounter. He was not a leader. He was a follower. So he followed and did what he was told. It wasn't far into the gloom that he found a door slightly ajar and behind the door stairs up. This way! He heard her beckon from above, and so he began to ascend. The landing at the top of the stairs might as well have been in a completely different building. This place was well-furnished and organized. It spoke of comfort and taste, organization and care. Two lushly appointed sitting chairs sat with a carved wormwood table between them. Two sturdy wooden bookshelves flanked another wooden door. The bookshelves housed an immaculate collection of books, all recently dusted and organized, first by topic, then author, and finally by date. The faint scent of lilac permeated the room. Please, take a seat. She motioned to a chair, but did not sit herself. Now, tell me how I may serve you. Alan Starr sat. I'm here, his voice cracked. He paused and pressed on. I'm here to pick up several prepaid items for Viscount Welgor Yugolfeth, the Lord of Lilgaford Peninsula. Gilly looked momentarily taken aback and then quickly shifted to excited. You're the librarian, Alan Starr Pembroke. The words were coming fast, tumbling out of her. I'm delighted to meet you. Of course, the Viscount told me to expect you, but I had no idea you were, well, you. She smiled genuinely this time, although Alan Starr couldn't tell the difference. Of course I have your, <laughs> I mean the Viscount shipment ready. Everything is packed in oilskins and seaworthy. However, I would of course unpack it all for you to inspect. She brightened as if just having a revelation. Would you like to see it now? Alan Starr puffed a little at his importance. Yes, I wish to see that everything is in order. Of course, right this way. She, never having sat down, alighted to the door and went through. This is the storeroom. Please, <laughs> come in. The storeroom was a tightly packed collection of crates, lit dimly by yet another gloomy window at the far end. Blast it! Gilly scowled from the corner. This accursed lantern will be the end of me. Alan Starr heard banging from the darkened corner of the room. Uh, last crate on the far end, right under the window. That's your shipment. I'll be right there. Alan Starr picked his way through the boxes in the dim light, touching the larger ones to reassure his step. This is so embarrassing. Gilly cooed from the corner. The window loomed closer, 
the mottled greenish sunlight painting the crate that was his goal. Alan Starr got down onto one knee before the crate and pulled at the lid. Surprisingly, it came right off. The top wasn't nailed in place, and it certainly wasn't sealed against the weather. He put it aside and began to remove the layers of straw covering his books. But the straw was deep, so deep, that he reached in and hit bottom. He turned his head in the direction that Gilly was fumbling with the lantern. This is the wrong crate, Gilly. There are no books in this one, he thought but did not say. Don't worry. The Viscount has arranged everything. Gilly stood just behind him, an iron-studded truncheon hanging low in her hand. And it can't wait to meet you. It was the last thing he heard before his world went black. The damp brine of the sea air clung heavily to Alan Starr and gave weight to the oppressive darkness that engulfed him. The throbbing in his skull slowed his thoughts, but he gradually took in the cool sand he was sitting on, the sturdy beam he was leaning against, and the metal manacle encircling his left arm. The darkness was so complete that he could see nothing and only was able to surmise his surroundings by feel. The manacle was attached to a chain and the chain ran back to a thick wooden post he was leaning against. A brief strain against the chain was followed by furious digging. Although the sand was easy to dig, the pillar appeared to be buried so deep as to be unmovable, so he gave up. This whole thing was so far outside his experiences that he collapsed and began moaning like a child. After some time, he regained his composure and focused on the only real clue to his whereabouts, the soft, gentle lap of water against sand nearby. Sand? Waves? Darkness? This must be a sea cave, he thought, but the revelation brought him no comfort. After what seemed like eons, a pale light began to emanate from a short distance ahead. The softness of it had an otherworldly quality, and after a moment's reflection, he guessed it to be daylight creeping in through a submerged cave entrance. With the light, he was able to fully take in his surroundings. It appeared to be a natural sea cave, but there was something about a large crack in the deepest shadows that drew his attention. Was it simply a fold in the rock, or did it hide a way out? It's just my imagination, he thought sullenly. I'm lost. No one knows where I am, and even more certainly, no one cares to look for me. I'm to die here. Defeated, he fell asleep. He woke in darkness again, to the sound of metal creaking and the rasping of wood scraping stone. From the left side of the cave, from the deep recess of shadow at the crack, there was light. By now, he had become accustomed to the briny gloom, and although he didn't see around the rock fold, an eerie, eldritch light began to gently spill forth. The light was unwavering as it slowly grew in intensity. Alanstar had seen magical light sources before, and this was clearly one of them. Their consistent illumination and inability to alight books had made them favored by librarians and mages alike. Alanstar had grown so accustomed to the darkness that the light was a balm to him, and any slight deviation in it was to him a glaring change. The light flickered for a moment, as if it was a mundane fire, but then returned to normal. Then another flicker, and another. The changes were coming quicker and increasing in intensity. Alanstar was confused, and then it dawned on him. The light wasn't changing. Something was coming this way. Rescue, he thought, and almost screamed for help before realizing that if someone was coming, they most certainly were his captors. He remained silent and fearful. 
The small waves incessantly lapped at the sand. Between them, he could hear a soft thud. The sound between waves was regular and growing louder. A shuffling of feet, perhaps? He thought. The light grew brighter. Alan Starr stared intensely at the crack, expecting anything, afraid of everything he could think of. A single white finger wrapped around the edge of the crack and was soon followed by its brethren. Then, it emerged. It was a man. A very, very old man, shriveled and dried like a husk. He was so thin that he reminded Alan Starr of the skeletons from anatomy class only encased in wet paper. Long, unkempt strands of gray hair fell from his head and face, but they were thin and patchy like that of a malnourished beggar. He did not look at Alan Starr as he shuffled forward towards the water, a globe of light hovering beside him. Alan Starr had been chained in a secret sea cave and was facing a death that he could not fathom, but he was stirred by an overwhelming sense of pity for this poor creature. He was once a man like me, once full of hope and dreams. What could have brought him so low? He thought, but dared not utter. Alan Starr was momentarily lost in rumination when the figure turned to face him. From the profile, he had not seen his eyes. A primal revulsion washed over him. He had no irises of any kind. The entire eye was milky white, like that of an opal. It may have been a trick of the darkness, but to Alan Starr, his eyes were unnaturally large. Those eyes stared at him for a long while. They were not the eyes of an old, feeble man. They were deep, knowing eyes that could bore into a man's soul. Those eyes saw through to his core, searing through his flesh into his memories, into the depth of his desires and fears. It was a cold, eternal gaze that he could not bear the scrutiny of. Alan Starr knew that he was in the presence of a profound intelligence and that his meager psyche was that of an algae before this. When he could not bear the gaze any longer, the man turned his head back towards the water and began shuffling forward once again, ever so slowly. Wait, please! Alan Starr croaked. Help me, please! It continued its shuffling. Please, in the name of the Sisters Three, I beg you! Alan Starr was an atheist and had thought the believers foolish simpletons. As such, he had never prayed before. His words rang hollow and unanswered. For the thousandth time, he strained weakly at the chains. The man stopped when the waves reached his ankles and simply waited motionlessly in the pale light. There was movement in the water. A swirling and swirling around a small fin at the edge of the light. Then, some distance away, the surface heaved in a serpentine motion as if an eel were undulating just below the surface. The man was as still as a statue, his gaze unmoving. In a moment, the water roiled as a massive creature broke the surface all at once before the man. Its description defied any clear explanation. Alan Starr recalled catching fish in a pond as his youth. Some of them were bottom feeders with fat heads and large tails. This monstrosity was like that, only massive. It was easily the size of two longboats placed end to end. Its skin was rubbery slick like that of an eel and it stretched tight across lean muscles and bone. But that was where the pond fish analogy fell woefully short. A series of squid-like tentacles emanated from below the jawline outward in several directions as they writhed in the surf. Alan Starr, however, fixated completely 
on its eyes. Most sea creatures have two eyes set on either side of their skull, but this abomination had three massive eyes set one behind the other along the center line of the body, beginning just behind the mouth. Each one was larger than a man's head, and each one was a living, pulsating, milky white opal. The man, heedless of the danger, stood frozen as the tentacles began to slowly encircle him in the shallows. Run! Alanstar screamed. Run! He said in a whisper without conviction. The mouth of the beast slowly, patiently, began to open, almost as if it took great effort. At its full extension, the flexing jaw muscles extended almost to the man's neck. Concentric rings of black teeth, many of which were broken, lined the massive maw. Time slowed as Alanstar struggled to comprehend what he was seeing. The man gingerly reached his hand forward to rest upon the upper lip of the beast. He turned to look back, his expression vacant, and then he bent low and crawled inside the mouth of the beast. Slowly, gingerly, silently, inexorably. His willful death broke what hope had remained, and Alanstar was hit with a wave of certainty. He would never leave this place. No, this can't be happening. Alanstar began sobbing without tears. His limbs were leadened and unmoving. Slowly, the maw closed. Sagging neck muscles began to flex and pulsate as a wet grinding sound drowned out the sound of the waves. It remained resting upon the sand, its massive black fin lolling gently in the waves. The swirling opaline colors of the stacked eyes began to dim as its meal ended. A long silence, and then the power of it thrummed through Alanstar's entire body, crumpling him to the ground and pressing the air from his lungs. The word tumbled like an avalanche at him, smashing his willpower. Again, the voice assaulted his mind and flooded him with pain. Dry heaves racked the pathetic librarian. His limbs numbly assented, and staggering, he found his footing. Thunder rolled through his skull, and a thick wetness streamed down his ears. He wanted to run. He wanted to stumble back. He wanted to scream. He walked forward. I'm not doing this, am I? He thought, but did not say. He moved forward, unfettered by the chain, the manacle gone. How did that happen? When did that happen? It's going to eat me. I'm going to be dead. No one will miss me. Another step. The water was cool on his toes, and in his periphery, he could sense the writhing tentacles encircling him. The power of its voice was like a force of nature engulfing him. Alanstar told his eyes to close, but they didn't listen. The cold tentacles coiled around his midsection and embraced his neck. Move! Run! He screamed soundlessly. His legs buckled, but he did not fall. The tentacles held him aloft. He turned his head in a final act of defiance, but the tentacles returned his face to its gaze. No! Stop! Please! Weakly and without conviction, he stammered. This is a thing immemorial. 
Its eyes are aeons deep. Before the birth of man, it swam. Before the rise of the elves, it conceived dark plans. From the depths of the eternal sea, the Aboleth hath been born. I... I, I I'm Alan Star! The strength of the voice crumbled what remained of his psyche, and what was left of Alanstar broke. You will read relentlessly, and when you can no longer read, then you will nourish me as your predecessor did. Alanstar could no more move a mountain than resist the command. His steps were not his own. His breath was not his own. I'm trapped inside myself. I cannot cry or scream. I cannot speak. My mind is entombed in a body that is no longer my own. His feet shuffled him to the stairs. His mind roared with revulsion and sickening horror. The door at the top of the stairs creaked open when the hands that were no longer his opened it. Bright eldritch light from numerous floating globes illuminated the room. In unison, nine sets of opalescent eyes turned to face Alanstar. Each set encased in an emaciated flesh cage. Each set a reader trapped in their own bodies. Mechanically and in unison, each husk turned back to their desks and resumed reading. The body of Alanstar ambled to the only open desk and opened the first book on the table. The voice commanded its power so vast as to be from deep time, so completely beyond his comprehension that he couldn't fathom it. A mountain of certainty crushed him. Certainty that the Aboleth had orchestrated everything. Certainty that it had dominated his body and locked his mind in a prison from which there was no escape. Certainty that it will command him to read for it till his last day and certainty that on that last day, he will slowly walk to the water and climb into its maw. And with that, our story comes to a close. The ancient, alien, aquatic, and awesome power of the Aboleth. It's a beast to revel in. If you're a fan of the long con, strategy, or simply dominating evil across the globe, these beings are much more likely to be a puppet master than a direct combatant when they're in their element. But, as we see in this story, they're also a formidable foe when you go toe to tentacle with them. I love this ending, and the fact that our protagonist only glimpses the Aboleth at the very end. He is only there as a pawn to a much bigger game, and one where we surely lose as humans. Chef's Kiss. Thank you for tuning in. Today's tale was written by Matt Teager. It was narrated and produced by Chuck D. Yeager. Voice talent was provided by Ray Hernandez, Tanya Yeager, and myself. All music is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. If you have a story about a monster and want to join the illustrious writers of the Monster Nation, feel free to contact us at themonsterboxawaits at gmail.com. And until next time, Remember, there's a story within every monster.